0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, thank you, John. Welcome again tonight to our Wednesday night midweek Bible study. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, please. Acts chapter 4. We're at the end of the chapter and into chapter 5 tonight uh, as well. We'll be just reviewing a little bit and then moving into some new material. So what I've done is I've uh, chosen to join the exposition of Acts 4 at the end with the beginning of Acts 5 because of the subject matter. And uh, you'll see in chapter 4 at the end, starting in verse 32, that they uh, shared with one another things as they had need And that theme carries on down through chapter 5, verse 16, really um, mainly through 5.11, but then the aftermath of that through 5.16. So I'd like you to uh, just think about that as a chunk of text, as a passage uh, delimited by that idea of benevolence inside the church and then also powerful evangelism outside the church, So first of all, the continuing ministry of the early church, I want to point out in chapter 4, verse 33, where it says this, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, although tonight I'm going to be spending more time, I think, in the message on the benevolence side and the thing that went awry with the benevolence in the church. Really, the focus I want to make is here in chapter 4, verse 33, that in the midst of their ongoing ministry with one another, remember last time we said despite the persecution that they were facing in the church, I mean, they were hauled up before the authorities, threatened to be beaten, thrown in jail, and so on. And in the midst of all of that, they just continued doing what God had called them to do, helping one another, praying, worshiping, gathering together, and here witnessing of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were powerfully testifying of the gospel. Now, they had great power accompanying them, that power which is apostolic in its nature. It's got to do with miracles, with signs, with wonders that authenticated their ministry and further proved the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But the focus can't be missed that this is focusing on the linchpin of the resurrection, which is the linchpin of the faith, the resurrection of Christ. And they pressed that truth upon people. They uh, had given them the implications of Jesus' lordship, of his salvation, as need their need to be saved. And Safe from future judgment and all the rest of that. So that focus there, they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I, I focus on this because we may not have persecution. We may not uh, have the same kind of benevolence program. We certainly don't have the um, miracles, signs, wonders, all of that sort of thing. We don't have all that. But we do and must have witnessing to the resurrection. Are you with me? That has to be in the church. Now, in chapter 5, there are a few other verses sprinkled throughout that I'll just mention that talk about this sort of thing uh, with the, with the, uh, resu- or the apostles and their ministry. Chapter 5, verse 12, "...through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people." Again, we can't do those, but we can testify the resurrection of Christ in chapter 5:13 it says yet none of the rest dared join them but the people esteemed them highly and believers were increasingly added to the lord multitudes both of men and women okay so they were all together chapter 5:12 says all together with one accord in solomon's porch that great meeting area suitable for a large assembly of hundreds and thousands of people and uh, they were sharing their their kind of a mindset about Christianity. Together they were in that thinking. We saw that in Acts 2 and Acts 4 earlier again. Uh, So they had a fundamental agreement of mind and of purpose and how they were going to to do things. And because of that unity of the church, the people outside of the church kind of looked in, and they had a high esteem for the church, but they didn't want to join them because... Why do you think they didn't want to join them? Well, I think the answer is in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The people, if you will read this just now, but if you recall, what happened in Acts 5, 1 to 11 is that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church and they died as a result of their lie. Okay, so now the people on the outside of the church looking in are saying, wait a minute, if we join that group and we blow it, we lie, we don't toe the line, people in there die. <laughs> you think that might hold them back from from coming into the church in a way? Yes. Uh, there is also the issue, of course, of the gospel and not you know, wanting to displease the authorities, the Jewish authorities, not themselves believing in the truth about Jesus. So there are a number of factors that keep people away from God, but those shouldn't keep us away from Him. We know better. So um, there's a danger they, they saw in messing with God's church. And messing with the church. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says something related to that. He says, If anyone destroys the church of God, him will God destroy. Have you, you remember that passage in the scripture before? Is that familiar to you? Yeah? Let me just read it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's in verse number 17. Uh, if, if anyone defiles the temple of God, let me back up to verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? That's speaking of the church corporately. Do you not know that you all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I've sometimes used this generically and maybe even an individual case or two, to remind people, look, you need to be careful about how you treat God's church. You go around trashing the church. uh, You you try to do things to destroy it, try to do things to undermine it. Just watch out. Even if that church isn't perfect. Oh, actually, (laughs) there is no perfect church, as you know. Going around undermining it, doing damage to it, and so on, is not the way that God wants us to operate. And somebody who tries to destroy the church, God is going to destroy him. Well, Satan is the ultimate destroyer who tries to destroy the church. He never can, though, because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. But he's in attempting to do so, and God will judge him very severely for that. So over time, chapter 5.14 now, back in Acts 5.14, over time people were added to the Lord little by little. Then, you know, it wasn't as fast as it was, uh, say, they won. Things had to slow down a little bit. They couldn't continue at that pace for very long. Um, And so multitudes, both of men and women, were added to the church. By the way, this phrase, both men and women, does it have any significance? Well, it does because it reminds us that women are equally needy and equally savable and equally saved as men are. The church is not a male-only institution. And what happened with the church in the early uh, era of it and all the way down to this day is that the church elevated the status of women in society. The status that women enjoy today in society is largely as a result of the work of the Christian church. And as a society is more Christian and more Christian, there is an elevation of women. Today, however, we see a regression in that area of society as we depart from Christian morality. Ladies are not esteemed as highly and as carefully as they ought to be, uh, not cared for as they ought, treated uh, not as they ought, um, in fact, it's a strange thing that, in the name of uh, kind of super uh, egalitarianism, now men are claiming to be women and thus undermining the special place that women have in some areas in the society. It's a re- a weird, like uh, re- almost like a reversal back to the way things used to be uh, in other societies where uh, it was totally. Male-dominated to the expense of care for the female in the society. Um, but that's not true. You know that, This situation of elevation of the status of woman is not true throughout the world. Um, have you heard of the, 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 uh, the uh, kind of abortion called sex-selective abortion? You know what that is? Who gets the short end of the stick on that one? Josh, do you know who who's are more girls or more boys aborted? Usually the girls. What? Why? You know, what what it's just it's really bad. So, but that's because that society is not a christianized society. It's a pagan. For thousands of years, societies that do that have been brought up and bring up in this kind of more immorality that's just permeates the society, but that, in, a Christian, in a Christianized place, that's not the case. As we become more post-Christian and neo-pagan in the United States of America and in the West generally, you're going to see the condition. The condition of women will be degraded. I just I can't see any way around that. There may be a, 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 a surgence, if you will, of matriarchalism as opposed to patriarchism, patriarchy, but there will be a problem by and by about that. Well, anyway, in chapter 5, back in there, in chapter 5, 15 and 16, so they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who are tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Does this remind you of a time before Acts 4 or Acts 5, rather, when this occurred, this kind of event? When when the Lord Jesus was ministering on the earth, they brought to him the sick from all the villages surrounding. And from morning until night, healing, and and, uh, people wanting to touch the hem of his garment and anything they could do to, to get healed. So there was a massive... Movement of the Spirit of God and healing people in the uh, surrounding area and especially with the apostles around. And there's this strange phenomenon of Peter passing by and his shadow passing by and causing healing to occur as recorded there. Probably didn't happen very often, but it was something that was reputed to have happened. There's the healing... Of physical afflictions. There's the healing of mental afflictions, of demon possession, hard, hard cases. The disciples had experienced hard cases before, and they knew that those had to be dealt with by prayer and fasting, and they did that. But uh, we move on now to the topic which will take the most of the rest of our time, which is benevolence in the church. And benevolence And healing of physical and mental afflictions must not overshadow still the message of 433 that God gave them great grace as they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So let's not forget that and have that overshadowed. Now, in chapter 432, it says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So they were of such a like-mindedness that they did not count their own possessions as their own possessions, but instead had a view of of things such that they could mutually share to cover the needs that they had that arose in that assembly. Now, let me just correct a view that is uh, held by some about this text that this is teaching us that early Christians were communists. They were not. This is not a form of communal living or communism where everyone was a shareholder in everything and no one in particular owned anything. Communism is that philosophy where property is at least theoretically publicly owned. Now that's only theoretical because the reality is the power brokers uh, have uh, control over it and uh, you're left with uh, a bunch of people that are a small bunch of people that are privileged and a huge bunch of people that are deprivileged and set aside. But in any case, um, the text mentions these people possessed things. They possessed lands and houses. And so there was private ownership of property. Okay, Lands were sold and then the proceeds were donated to the common cause. Now, in the Old Testament, too, there was private ownership How do we know there's private ownership? Well, because the Bible says thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal, so that means if something doesn't belong to you, you take, okay, when you steal, you can't do that. So we know there's private ownership. Now, land was not owned in the exact same way that it's owned here in the US, although in a way it is. Um, When you have to pay property taxes, you're basically leasing your property from the government in a way. Yes, but there uh, the land was leased and it was returned to uh, the original family owners every Jubilee year. Remember that? You'd have to, they'd buy the land, but they really wouldn't buy it. They would lease it for the value that it could produce over the ensuing years until the 50th year. And then the 50th year, that, that plot, plot of ground would revert back to the ownership of the original tribe and family that owned it. And so you could never permanently disinherit a tribe by buying up all of their land, in any case, uh, land was uh, was owned, uh, practically speaking. And there's an example of what happened to the church in the church in its benevolence program. Um, it says in thirty four nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet now again they didn 't sell everything they had because they still had to live somewhere and still had to have food and, and plant crops and things like that. But if they had extra that they didn 't have to have in order to survive, they were able to give that uh, and distribute to each as anyone had need, so those who had some wealth were able to share that wealth and it says in verse um, thirty-five, they laid that at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as everyone anyone had need. And now here's a specific example: thirty-six, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. What does Barnabas mean? Bar is son in the Aramaic. Barnabas, son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's a guy who doesn't even belong to this area. He's a Cypriot. He, he, he has land. Maybe that land was even in Cyprus. And he went and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, hey, I have this extra. I don't need this. I want to give it so that people who have need can be supported. So it's an outstanding example of such benevolent activity in the church. So this arrangement is not called communism, it's called benevolence. The in common phrase where they hold things in common, so to speak, is is not a prescriptive text that is not commanding or prescribing a certain course of action, but it's a descriptive text that describes for us how benevolence should work in the church. And when there's a need, the church helps to meet the need. The benevolence was centered in the church family too, not outside of the church family. Today, people outside expect the church to meet outside needs all the time, but they don't want to join the church by faith in Christ, by being baptized, by joining the membership of the church. They want the benefits, but they don't want the responsibilities. They want the benefits, but they don't want the gospel. Uh, But that's not really how it works. We're to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So there's an emphasis on benevolence inside of the church so that the people in the church, the people who have needs and those needs are met are met in and by the church. The church cannot meet the needs of all of the society because that's the job of the society at large, families Individuals, families, and then finally governments, but not the church. The, family, the, the church actually is kind of an extended family, if you will. Now, benevolence in the church can easily go astray. In my notes, I've called this benevolence gone awry. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Benevolent acts in the church can go astray in a number of ways. Perhaps the most pervasive way that benevolence goes awry in our day is that it becomes the highest goal of ministry. Variants of this philosophy go under the title of social gospel or missional church. Uh, It's difficult to understand that phrase, missional church. Uh, Some people are using it now of of, of missional, of good things, of missionary activities. But really, that's a phrase that has a bad uh, origin to it. Um, but the proponents of a missional church say that the church should 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 not see itself as attractional. Uh, so far, so good. But rather, should engage society by using evangelism and social justice. The emergent church also is involved in this philosophy as well. So a lot of churches have gone into this, really reaching out in in the benevolent side of it, the social justice side of it. And benevolence can go awry there, and it comes up this. Comes or arises out of a bad uh, connection between the Mosaic law and the church. You know, like uh, people always go back to um, Micah chapter 6, verse number 8. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, and other passages in the Old Testament that talk like that, and they just will lock, stock, and barrel take those. Texts without any regard for their context or the kind of nature of them in regard to the Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Promises and just connect them to the church uh, and and allows benevolence to overwhelm the ministry of the gospel and of discipleship. Our mission is to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to, to do and obey everything that Jesus taught us. That's where our focus lies. So benevolence can go astray when it swallows up the ministry of the church and takes over what the church is supposed to be focused on. But benevolence also goes astray when it enables the recipient to continue in a bad pattern of behavior. As one book was titled, this very variation of this, indeed, it is the case that sometimes helping hurts people. Helping hurts people. If you help them so much that they don't have to get a job when they can, then you're not actually helping them. You're hurting them. You're enabling them to continue on in their bad behavior. Okay? So that's a second way that benevolence can go astray. Third way that benevolence can go astray is found here in Acts chapter 5. Benevolence went awry through the sin of pride and self-promotion as well as greed. Look at chapter 5 with me, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias... With Sapphira, his wife sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but... God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Now, what he, what he was saying there is, did you sell the land for that X amount that your husband said you sold it for? And she said, yes, that's the case. But they knew that he was lying, and thus she was lying voluntarily as well. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Any any wonder why people didn't dare to join them after that? They got a little bit antsy or jumpy about it. So um, they hatched a plan, Ananias and Sapphira did. They hatched a plan to sell land like Barnabas did, Pretend that they were giving the whole proceeds of the sale to support the needy in the church, and thus they too then could be seen as sons of encouragement. But Peter knew by divine revelation what was happening, and that Ananias and Sapphira were influenced by the holy by, sorry, by Satan to lie to the Holy Spirit, to sully up the benevolent work of the church and promote themselves instead of the needs of others. Listen to this. They were using benevolence wrongly for their own selfish goals. Okay, so put some numbers to it. They sold a piece of land, $100,000. They said, we can look like we're so sacrificial if we give $75,000 to the church and we keep 25. We're going to look just like Barnabas, honey. Don't you agree with me that we'll do that? And Sapphira agrees with Ananias, and they give the 75,000 to the church, and you'd think, wow, that's good, that's a lot. They kept 25 for themselves, or maybe it was 50 and 50, or maybe they gave 25 and kept 75. Well, we don't know the numbers, but they agreed to lie to the church to make it look like they were being totally sacrificial so they could be seen as somebody in the church, some person that's very generous, but they weren't very generous they were holding back and had their own selfish goals maybe to use some of that money for themselves but also to make themselves look better in the church so again private ownership is is uh, assumed here peter says verse 4 while it remained was it not your own and after it was sold was it not in your own control you know you didn't have to lie about it you didn't have to make it look like you did this so that you'd just be be just like Barnabas. You deceived the church by leading people to believe that you had given everything when in fact you had not done so. This constituted a lie. Now, we don't know exactly how he carried out this deception. The text doesn't tell us, but certainly it was the case that he did. So he tried to hoodwink all of them so that he and his wife could get kudos from the church. It was a kind of a, look, we want honor, we want to look good. So the special punishment that God decided to dole out was death for Ananias and for his wife, who openly lied about the price as well. She could have come clean at that point later on, three hours later, but she didn't. And God was setting an example here. He wasn't going to have people running around lying in the church and making Uh, benevolence about themselves. And this then, I think, set the stage for the church throughout the rest of its history to have a kind of giving that is not um, one that permits congratulation to the donors of the church. You know, we don't have a list up here of the highest donors down, you know, sorted on the spreadsheet by highest to lowest so you can see Uh, you know, wow, these people are really the good givers in the church. That's now you have no idea, for the most part, who gives what. And you might be surprised at who gives what. Um, But the, the thing is, we have now, from this time, a special constraint, a special restraint, a special privacy about donation to the church so that this doesn't become a problem. We're not here to elevate person X over person Y because X gave, you know, has a better job or can sell more inherited property and give more than person Y can. That has nothing to do with it. The question is, is the work of the church being supported? Are the missionaries being supported? Are the pastors being supported? Are you doing what God wants you to do? Are you giving generously, cheerfully from the heart? Are you giving sacrificially? Are you giving at all? That's between you and the Lord, and sometimes your pastor, if you talk to him about that, or other Christian counselors. But in any case, we should stop to consider at this point our own sins. What if God did this punishment for every sin? Have you ever done a sin like Ananias and Sapphira? Oh, you say, I, I, I've been a little more subtle. <laughs> I've looked for congratulation and pats on the back from others in a more, you know, private kind of way. I love to have, uh, you know, congratulation. You know, maybe we've done something to save face. Not just to achieve public recognition, but to avoid public shame. If God punished us like Ananias and Sapphira, where would we be? Does it do any good to be less obvious than Ananias and Sapphira just because we're a little more clever than they were? Does that make the sin any better than theirs? I just commend that to you as a thought of application. Very important. Now, thank God for his grace that he doesn't decide to zap everybody immediately when they sin. Otherwise, we'd all be toast a long time ago, right? God is gracious, long-suffering, waiting for people to come to repentance. Thank God for that. But there's something about the introductory nature of the book of Acts, the early church, that God wanted to set set the tone in the church about giving, about benevolence, about raising yourself up and not being humble, God put down those who exalted themselves here so that he would straighten it out from the very beginning in the church. Now for maybe the toughest question of all, theologically, were Ananias and Sapphira true Christian people? Usually people assume that they were believers because of two things. First, they had a prior connection to the local church in Jerusalem, although we admit we don't know how deep that connection was. Secondly, we assume they were believers because they gave something to the church. But I'll tell you, that doesn't necessarily mean that a person has a genuine connection to a local church. We've had unbelievers give to the church some gifts, you know, generous little gifts, gifts in the hundreds of dollars to the church for something that we've done or some way they feel about the church or whatever, and those are wonderful just giving doesn't mean that you have a genuine connection to the church. Now, I will concede that they may have indeed been true believers, and God may have disciplined them after the fashion of 1 Corinthians 11.30. Remember that passage? Many, Because, uh, because you have you know, treated, mistreated the Lord's table, mistreated the church, not discerning the body, many among you are weak and sick, and many sleep, meaning many of you have died because of this. But, even though I concede that's a possibility, I want to caution you with several observations. Number one, the Bible tells us that they were liars. They were liars. They agreed together to be liars publicly before the entire church. Now, that's pretty bold. Husband and wife decide together we're going to lie to the church. It's not like, you know, honey, maybe we could just do this, and then Sapphira says, Ananias... Come on, you can't, you can't do that. You know, and they kind of get their heads screwed on straight and, and act properly. They, they agreed together to lie. Ananias was called in the scriptures in verse 1, a certain man. Whereas all the others were called the multitude of those who believed. So 432 says the multitude of those who believed. And one says, but a certain man. There's a contrast there. But in the way that he's called a certain man. He's not explicitly called one of the believers. Number three, the mindset of the multitude was united in that they did not hold their own things dear, but shared them commonly. That was not the mindset shared by Ananias and Sapphira. Fourth, Ananias was filled by Satan in his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan filled Ananias' heart. That's not something we want for ourselves, is it? It does not sound a good note for his conversion. So again, I concede possibility, but I tentatively hold that they were fakes, hanging around the church looking for congratulation from others because of their philanthropy. Now, in the big picture here of this passage, you might think, oh, it'd be nice if we had this kind of power that they had in the early church, you know, my shadow passing over people as I walk through the hospital corridors. Everybody gets healed and they, they all go home. Um, but God has seen fit to provide us a less, a less spectacular kind of power, one that saves men and women from eternal condemnation quietly working in their hearts. That's the gospel. We give witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and we draw people toward him in introducing him to them so that they will become Christians as well. And that doesn't happen with fanfare and with uh, you know great noise and all of that, but quiet work, the quiet work of God. And in the soul, and in uh, the quiet of the night, as you reflect on having heard the gospel of Christ, as you hear the preaching of the word and you say, yeah, you know, that's exactly right. I am a sinner and God has provided the solution for my, my, my need. He has sent his son to die in my place and beyond that he rose again from the dead so I could be sure that the penalty has been paid and I can have life eternal through him. That he's the king, I'm his subject, I must submit to him. That kind of stuff happens in the quiet of your mind in your heart. When you're thinking, so perhaps tonight, perhaps some listening here this evening, who haven't ever heard this before, would you know not be looking for the great, grand, and spectacular, and all of that, the noise, and the signs, and the wonders, and uh, all of those things, but rather that you would think about your own soul being saved from eternal condemnation, and experience the great power of the resurrection in your own heart. Working quietly, but working surely. Working slowly, but working powerfully. Working spiritually and working a tremendous change in your heart. God's also provided us with the necessary means to help one another. But we must take pains to make sure that benevolence doesn't go awry so that it becomes a thing of congratulation or reputation or shame and honor and all of that. May God bless the reading and exposition of his word tonight. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here tonight. Thank you for the kindness that you've bestowed in allowing us to study the word in peace. And I pray that it will have its powerful but quiet work in our hearts And, Lord, that we will be resolved not to be like Ananias and Sapphira, to lie, to seek in our hearts self-congratulation. Rather, instead of worshiping ourselves, we would worship Christ. Thank you for each one here and those listening on the computer. May you watch over them and us as we go uh, to our homes. Uh, Most of us, I trust, to rest this evening. Be ready for the day's activities tomorrow. Help those, Lord, with decisions before them that you will give them guidance and peace about those things, Uh, wisdom from above. In Jesus' name, amen.